Yeah, so here's what we've been looking at in this series. We've been taking a look at the fact that you and I, we have this tendency to get hyper-focused on some things. And the first thing that Ben introduced us to in this series is that we get hyper-focused on ourselves at the expense of focusing on God. And if we really focused on the fact that God himself, the creator of the universe, provides us with this amazing opportunity to call him dad and to live in relationship with him, that would change our perspective on a lot of things. And then the second week we looked at how we get really wrapped up in our own weaknesses and we get really focused on our own weaknesses. But if we, if we compared those weaknesses to God's power, all of a sudden our weaknesses would come into a whole new perspective. And then last week we looked at how we get all wrapped up in our fears. But if we would really pay attention to the ferocious love of God that he has for us, that would change our our perspective on everything. And we've been using this metaphor of microscopes and telescopes, which do, they do the same thing. They magnify things, right? So like a, a microscope magnifies small things and makes them look bigger than what they actually are. A, a microscope's job is literally to blow things out of proportion, to distort reality. A telescope, though, on the other hand, takes massive things that appear small and makes them look more like what they actually are. So this actually gets us closer to what reality actually is even though we're still kind of barely scratching the surface of the magnificence of the things that we're looking at through the lens of a telescope. And I want to add one to the mix this week, and this is a magnifying glass. And the reason I want to add this to the mix is this is something that's portable that we can take with us that we can use to scrutinize things with wherever we go. And I want you to hang on to that idea. Now, a few weeks ago uh, was a weekend where I was, I was teaching on a weekend just like this. And, and in my house, I, uh, on Sunday mornings, we, we have services on, on Saturday night at the Lafayette campus. We have uh, services on Sunday morning at the Lafayette campus. And so on Sunday morning, I get up really, really early when I'm teaching so that I can get my mind right, get enough coffee in me and all that kind of thing. And so, so my wife gets very frustrated with me, though, on Sunday mornings because uh, the way that our bedroom and bathroom are set up is there's no door between the bedroom and the bathroom and so she has informed me that I am too loud on Sunday mornings and that I tend to wake her up and I'm like well I'm sorry babe I'm just going off to you know preach the word of God while you sleep that's okay that's sorry you do your thing she was here last night I did not say that last night all right so please please don't inform her of what I've just said but but that's the way I feel inside. And so, uh, so, so I, I, I've been told I'm too loud. I, you know, I bang around in, the, in, in, in there and everything, and I wake her up. And so on this particular weekend, our kids had spent the night on Saturday night with, with their grandparents, and so we didn't have any kids. And so on Saturday night, my, my, my wife gave me explicit instructions for Sunday morning, which was, which was basically like this. She's like, I don't care where you shower, but you are not using our shower tomorrow because we don't have kids in the house, which means I have the opportunity to sleep until I decide to wake up, which means that if you wake me up, I will kill you. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, ma'am. Like, all right. And so the next morning I sneak out of our, our room and, and this is my big tactical error. I had two other options. I, I could have gone to my daughter's bathroom or this is what I ultimately chose. I could have gone to the bathroom in the hall that my three boys all share. Now, if you've ever been to a bathroom that only boys use, it matters not what their age is, okay? Despite the fact that in my house, one of those boys is potty training, which is exponentially worse, all right? It's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And I, I try not to ever really go in there. And so, so I was like, well, I'm a boy. I should use the boys' bathroom. So I go to the boys' bathroom. I get in the shower, and I quickly realize there is not a bar of soap in this entire bathroom. There's no, there's no soap to be found. And, and, and I was like, oh, okay, well, it's fine. And I noticed these bottles of body wash. There's like several of them in there. I'm like, okay, great. I pick up one, empty. Pick up another one, empty. All of them are totally empty. And in my mind, I'm going, how long has it been this way? 
Like how long have these boys been walking around just filthy, dirty? And so I, you know, I, I, I come to church, I, I teach, and then I, I go back home and I, I, I see the boys and I'm like, hey, hey guys, come here. Did you know that there was no soap in your shower? And they're all like, no. <laughs> Why would we even care, you know? And they're like, okay, so, so how long has it been that way? They're like, we, we have no idea. And then my wife was just horrified. She was like trying to explain to them that it doesn't count if you just stand under the water for a couple minutes. That's not getting clean. Now, Jesus dealt with some people exactly like my boys. Jesus dealt with these religious folks who really thought that just kind of a cursory outward cleansing was enough at the expense of the deep cleaning that was needed on the inside. And these guys were religious professionals. They were known as the Pharisees. And the thing about the Pharisees was they walked around with magnifying glasses. They were really good at pointing out where somebody else was unclean, but they never turned the magnifying glass towards themselves. And so Jesus had some really strong words for these Pharisees. Look at what he said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Now, how many of you are coffee drinkers? Okay, yeah, lots of uh, Christians in here today. That's good. And so, so, so if you're like me, you have like one or two coffee mugs that you just use all the time at your place of work or, or whatever. And I, I have one coffee mug, it's Kentucky Wildcats coffee mug, and I keep it on my, on my desk. And I don't ever put that thing in the dishwasher. I just dump the old coffee out, put the new coffee in from one day to the next. And this system works just fine until you go away for a little while. <laughs> You take like a, a vacation or a long weekend or something like that. And, and if you're like me, sometimes you leave like a little bit of coffee in the bottom of that coffee cup. And if you leave for a little while and you come back, you will find a science experiment on the inside that looks something like this. Yeah. Now, how many of you have had that experience? You've come back and you found exactly that. Exactly. That, that's what happens. That's what Jesus is saying to these religious professionals. He says, like, look, you guys look great on the outside, but on the inside, you guys are gross. On the inside, you guys are a mess. You're disgusting. He keeps going, look at this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So for us, this metaphor or comparison is somewhat lost on us a little bit, but to his audience on that day, they would have been deeply offended by what he was saying. Because in, in Jewish context, in, in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem, before major feasts and festivals like Passover, uh, people would actually go out around the city and they would take white paint and they would mark graves and tombs so that people who were traveling to Jerusalem could avoid coming into contact with those graves or with those tombs because if they accidentally stepped on one of those or came into contact with one of those they would have actually been rendered according to Jewish law ceremonially unclean and unable to go to the temple which was the whole reason some of them had traveled hundreds of miles to go to Jerusalem in the first place and so this was just something the citizens of Jerusalem did as a favor to travelers to go hey make sure you watch out for these white washed tombs. And so when Jesus says to these religious professionals, these Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, he's saying, listen, when people come into contact with you, you actually drive them further away from God instead of drawing them closer to God, which is what you're supposed to be doing. It would have been absolutely deeply offensive to them. He's telling these guys, look, you walk around proudly. 
You've cleaned up the outside of the cup, but on the inside, you are all messed up. You're pretending to be okay when you're not okay. So one of the things that we actually need to do is we need to take out a magnifying glass, and we need to actually pay attention to what's going on inside our hearts and be honest about it and stop pretending like my boys that we're clean when we're definitely not clean. In the Old Testament was a really helpful tool. It was really actually a magnifying glass. Over 600 laws and rules and regulations that were meant to make clear that none of us can measure up to God's standards. But these religious experts, these Pharisees, they actually, because they were so familiar with these rules and these laws and these regulations, they actually started to perceive that there were loopholes and technicalities through which they could justify their sinful behavior. So one of the things that Jesus came to do was actually to add a level of scrutiny to religious people to reveal through the lens of a magnifying glass that you are not nearly as good as you think you are. So Jesus did this in some really effective ways. Look at what he did in Matthew chapter 5. He said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, Jesus is going, This is not simply about what you do on the outside. You all think you're off the hook because you haven't murdered anybody, but can any of us pass? the test of not being angry with someone or, or calling someone a name or being judgmental towards somebody or being brutal with our words towards someone else. None of us passes that test. And so what Jesus is trying to make very clear is that God cares about the internal motivations of our heart. He cares about why we do what we do or why we don't do what we don't do. And he pushes the ball even further down the court. Look at this. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And everybody's nodding. Yeah, we've all heard that one. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his, in his heart. And he, again, can anybody pass that test? And he specifically says this to to some people in, in his context, the Pharisees, the religious professionals, they really thought that they had found a technicality in the law that would allow them to commit serial adultery but be technically obeying the letter of the law. So what they would do is sometimes these men, they would divorce their wives five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times and they would have all these different wives but they would give them a legal certificate of divorce so that it wasn't technically adultery and what Jesus is saying to them is like, do you think you're fooling God? Do you think you're mocking the creator of the universe? Do you think he doesn't see through your veiled attempts to preserve your self-righteousness? Do you think God can be tricked? So what Jesus does very effectively is he provides this magnifying glass that reveals our deepest, darkest thoughts and desires and motivations of our heart. And he does that so that we can see that none of us is okay on our own. None of us is okay on our own. We all fall short. None of us measure up. And we're all in need of exactly what we cannot do for ourselves. We all need this deep and thorough cleansing of the heart. And that's exactly what we cannot do. Jesus says, man, quit walking around pretending to be okay when you're not okay. That's not okay. So it's actually a really good thing for us to have a healthy perspective on this thing called sin. And sin, as we've talked about before, is an archery term. It simply means missing the mark. You got like a bullseye, and that's the target. And you can miss the bullseye by a little bit, or you can miss the entire target altogether. Either way, you have missed the mark. Now, you may be across one of our campuses today going, man, I don't even believe all this stuff. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe there's a standard. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Okay, let's go with that for a second. We all, whether you believe in God or not, we all have our own self-determined standards of what we think is ideal and best and right and true. 
And who among us has ever perfectly lived up to our own standards of what we believe is right and best and true? Anybody? Anybody have no regrets? Anybody look back on their life and go, I have always done it perfectly based on my own estimation of what perfect would be at all times without fail. Anybody? No, so again, we can't even live up to our own standards. Now, let's say there is an almighty creator of the universe. You think he would not have standards? Here's the reality. God has a standard. God has a standard and that standard is perfection all the time without exception. A bullseye every time without fail. So Romans 3.23 says it this way. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all sin. We all miss the mark. Sin is serious. Sin is a big deal because Romans 6.23 says for the wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment we get for all of our attempts at being good enough on our own is eternal separation from God. So we have to come to terms with the severity of our sin so that we can come to terms with the magnificence of grace. We have to come to terms with how bad the bad news is so we can come to terms with how good the good news is. And the bad news is bad. You and I, we have no ability to clean ourselves up or to measure up to God's perfect standards of our own, on our own. We can, we can pretend, we can fool one another perhaps, but we cannot fool God. So yeah, through the lens of a microscope, here's the reality. For the wages of sin is death. And here's the deal. Band-aids don't cure cancer. And all of our attempts, apart from Jesus, to be good enough for God, go to church, be a good person, whatever that is, are band-aids on cancer. They're ineffective. They do nothing. So the telescope, though, says this. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that phrase, free gift, literally means a favor, a gift of grace to someone undeserving. So here's the spectacular reality. Grace is a gift. It's a free gift that you and I do not deserve and we will never deserve. There will never be a moment where, where God goes, you know what? You finally, you finally accomplished. You finally measured up. You finally did enough good things to equal or to pay me back or to finally deserve what I did for you when I sent my one and only son to the cross and I raised him back to life on the third day. You finally measured up. That day will never come based on our own merit. That's why grace is simply a free gift given to us despite the fact that we are absolutely undeserving. It's a free gift. Check out Romans 5 too. It says this, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Another definition of grace is a gift that brings inexpressible joy. That's my daughter's middle name is Grace. We named her Grace because how could I ever fully express to you like the level of joy that she brings into my life? How could I ever like fully put words around the way I felt when I met her for the first time in that delivery room? How in the world could I ever fully express to you the way I feel about my one and only daughter? Now I'll try, I'll try to express that to you, but I'll never have words to fully articulate how grateful I am for her. It's the same with grace. We'll never be able to fully wrap words around what grace actually is and what grace has actually done in our lives. We'll never be able to fully express our gratitude for grace, but we should spend our lives trying. I love that phrase, into this grace in which we stand. I was thinking about that this week. I've told you guys a million times how much I love the ocean. 
And I recognize after, uh, after last week that now everybody's afraid of swimming pools and hot tubs, much less the ocean. But I, I love walking into the ocean. I don't understand people who can just sit on the beach and not go out into that. And I'm a horrible swimmer. I mean, it doesn't really make sense. But I have to like, I love to go like immerse myself in the ocean. And, and we all, I think, do the same thing. Like we kind of walk slowly out into the, into the water. And then that first wave hits us and then we pee. Like that's just what happens, you know. And then and you just have to. I mean, it's just, it's okay. And so, so, so then you, you keep walking out into the water and eventually you get to that point where you know like the next couple steps it's going to be you're going to be in over your head and I think we all do the same thing and all weekend long people have been nodding at me as I've said this but you get to that point where the only thing touching the bottom is like the tip of your big toe right as and, and the question I have is why why do, why do we do that? Why do we hang on to the tip of that big toe down on the bottom as if somehow that's giving us some measure of control over the situation? Like if some, that, this is keeping me anchored. I got this. You know, in the face of the vast and endless sea, you know, I think if God of the universe is looking at us, he's probably going, I, I can knock you down like this, you know, one rogue wave and we're, we're done. Now, why do we do that? I, Doug Wilson says it really well. He says this, God's grace is a tsunami that will carry us all away and deposit us in places we could not have anticipated and all of them, listen to this, all of them good. We analyze all this carefully and say that we want our grace to be genuine water, just like the tsunami, but we want it to be a placid pond on a summer day that we can inch across gingerly, always keeping one pointed toe on what we think is the sure bottom of our own do-gooding morality. We try to control grace, and it makes about as much sense as keeping your big toe barely pointed to the bottom of the ocean, as if somehow that gives you control. We want to think, man, I've, I've got this. I'm doing this. I'm earning this. I'm on my way. I, I'm doing something to contribute to what God is doing for me. I'm in control of this. And grace is like a tsunami. You can't control it. My kids love watching America's Funniest Home Videos, and I don't know why. I mean, it's been on for like 40 years. There's been like 12 hosts and all that. But sometimes I'll, I'll come home and the DVR will be full. Somebody set it to record America's Funniest Home Videos, which plays like apparently on a 24-hour loop on some channel. And so there'll be 82 episodes on there. And every now and then I do get caught up in watching some of it with them. And, and one of the things that's just always been consistent on America's Funniest Home Videos, there's always a segment every few shows where people are just getting just rocked by waves. And I, I'll be honest with you, I could watch watch it all day long. Here's a couple of my favorites. Check these out. Wee! What could be better than Disney World? We love it so much. My favorite part about that last one, I mean, I've seen it like a dozen times now, is if you pay close attention in that wave, there's a leg sticking up that's just, you know, <laughs> like somebody's just end over end. I love, I love watching that stuff. Listen to me, God's grace is not always gentle, but it's always good. You hear me? It's not always gentle, some of us know that all too well, but it is always good. And here's why it's not always gentle, because some of us are strugglers. <laughs> some of us are control freaks, me being one of them. A good friend of mine, Michael Kane, who's our financial guy here on staff, he, he, he's a really prideful and arrogant swimmer. And um, he, he comes in, he's got this goal this summer of swimming, I don't know, a bunch of miles and things like that. And so every day he updates me, swam another mile, 1.2 miles today. I'm like, great. And he's like, why don't you come join me? I'm like, no. 
why don't I not do that? Because you'll be resuscitating me at the end of the pool, and I don't want to be seeing you giving me mouth-to-mouth in public. I just, I'm not down for that. And so, so, so the reality is people have watched me swim, and the reason that they tell me I'm such a bad swimmer is because I, I struggle so much. They say, like, Scott, you literally look like you're in a fight with the water. Like, chill. Chill. And I think that that's how a lot of us react to grace. We're, we're strugglers. We want to contribute, and so we can't just let go. We're not into grace. We want to earn our way. We want, to, we want to charge our own mountain. We want to swim our own seas. But God's furious love is more than adequate to show us how powerful and overwhelming his grace is, which is good because we have a big problem. It's called sin, which means we, have, we need a bigger solution, which is what we have, and it's called grace, and it's a tsunami. By definition, God's grace is bigger than all of our sin and way bigger than all of our attempts to appear better than we really are. Look at this, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive, I love this, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That word abundance literally translates overflowing. Grace, by definition, means overflowing. So he's saying the overflowing, overflowing. (laughs) Grace, point your big toe all you want. Another thing that I've never been able to do I've never been able to float on my back in the water. I cannot do it. Like I, and again, it's because I fight against the water. I can't simply surrender and just float freely. I can't do it. And that's how a lot of us are with grace. We can't just surrender and just float freely in God's grace because everything else in life seems to work the opposite of that. Everything else in life seems to be based on you work hard enough, you get paid for what you've done. Everything else in life is based on wages and merit, but grace is exactly the opposite of that. This is being given something amazing despite the fact that we don't merit it. We tend to think, though, like, okay, maybe that's true at the beginning, but at some point, God's grace has got to run out. At some point, that well has to run dry. At some point, God's going to get sick of me. God's going to get fed up with me. God's going to walk out on me. Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, the law's function was like a, a, a microscope to reveal you are as jacked up as jacked up can possibly be. But where sin increased, look at this, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the microscope reveals just how sinful we are and sin is serious and sin is a lot and sin mounts up. But grace abounded all the more. And if you read this in the original Greek, the grammar of it's like a five-year-old put this sentence together. And the reason is, is because Paul is trying to express the inexpressible. So it literally, the word literally translates superabound. Doesn't that sound like a five-year-old? Tell me about grace. It's it's, like superabounds, right? He sounds childish as he says this because he can't find enough words to describe how amazing grace is. So yeah, sin is serious and sin is significant and we all have a lot of sin but God for while we were still weak at just the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For someone will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Here it is. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. I got an email recently from somebody who said they got that phrase but God tattooed on their body. I didn't ask where. But because that phrase changes everything. And that's our stories, a lot of us, isn't it? 
Life looked like this, but God. I looked like this, I did this, but God. But God changes everything. And that's through the lens of a telescope when we focus on, but God did this. But we get all wrapped up in the lens of a microscope where we have these arguments where we go, but I, but I, I sinned so big, I messed up so bad, I walked out on my family, but I cheated, but I lied, but I stole, but I'm so broken, I'm so evil, I'm so sinful. Right. That's all true. Pile it all up. Take a good look at it. Look at it. It's huge. It's, surmountable. it's insurmountable, right? All of our sin, all of our shame, all of our regret. Get it in good perspective. And God's grace is the tsunami that overwhelms and carries it all away. And I could stand up here and I could try to drill this into all of our hearts and minds, but I think it'd be better for us to just spend some time with God this week to really reconcile this in our hearts and our minds. So some homework again this week. We've been doing homework throughout this series. If you've only been around for a couple of them, go back online and get the homework from the previous weeks. But this week's is this. Take out your program, flip it over, take a look at this. Here's the instructions. Piece of paper, pen, Bible. That's all you need. Piece of paper, pen, and a Bible. Draw a line down the middle of the piece of paper, just like we've been doing. On the left-hand side, write the phrase, but I. But I. And then write down all the arguments you have for being beyond God's grace. All the reasons why you are the most spectacular sinner that the world has ever seen. All the reasons why you are the one person in the history of the universe that God the Father did not take into account when he sent his one and only son to the cross. Had he known what you would do, he would have made you exempt from his grace. Write down all your arguments of, but I am somehow exempt from your grace. It's unavailable to me. Write them all down, all the arguments that you have. It may take a little while. And then when you're finally done, here's the verse I want you to read. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. This is Paul's story. This is his life. He says this, I'm so grateful to Christ Jesus for making me adequate to do this work. He went out on a limb, you know, and trusting me with this ministry. The only credentials I brought to it were invective and witch hunts and arrogance, but I was treated mercifully because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was doing it against. Grace mixed with faith and love poured over me and into me, and all because of Jesus. Here's a word you can take to heart and depend on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof, public sinner number one, of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off. Evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Deep honor and bright glory to the king of all time. One God, immortal, invisible, ever and always. Oh, yes. Let that sink in. Read it one, two, three times if you need to. And take out your piece of paper, make another column. On the right side, write the phrase, but God. And then just take the rest of your time, because we can never pay him back. But here's what we can do. We can say thank you. And just write out a prayer of thank you to God. Now, next week, we're going to be kicking off a new series called Rough Crowd. And we're going to be looking at real-life case studies of just how amazing grace can get and how outrageous grace can be, and we're going to look at stories of grace getting carried away. Because here's the deal, we don't simply have but I arguments in the face of grace. If we're really honest, we all carry around, it's portable, a microscope, and we point it at other people, and we have but they arguments before God in the face of amazing grace. And we're the proverbial hall monitors that keep an eye on grace to make sure it doesn't get out of control or carried away. 
And so if we see someone getting out of line and God offer grace to them, we go, whoa, 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 time out, God. But they, come take, God, you missed it. I think you need to look closer at what they did. They're so messed up. They're so mean. They're so lost. They're so broken. They're so hurtful. They're so addicted. We come up with this list of why we should throw the brakes on grace. God, I'm sorry, you're getting a little carried away. And we need to admit this because all of us have something out there that if we saw grace forgive that sin, we would go, whoa, 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 uh uh-uh, that's not okay. That's not okay for you to forgive that one, God. We all have one, two, maybe three things that we go, yeah, but you can't forgive that. That would not be okay. See, we're afraid of grace getting carried away, but that's exactly what grace does. It carries us away. We're grateful when it carries us away. But when we see it carrying somebody else away, sometimes we're like, wait a second, God, you're getting carried away, right? We'll hear about some horrible murderer in prison, you know, the infamous or whatever, coming to Christ, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, no, that's not true. That's fake news. We'll hear about some famous athlete who lived his life in just extravagant sin for, you know, week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year after year, and our first reaction is no way. He's just lying. Our first reaction to God's overabundant, overabounding, over-the-top, more-than-enough, extravagant, amazing grace, skepticism. That's what we think. But God, he's got a track record of doing the most unlikely things in the most unlikely ways at the most unlikely times with the most unlikely people, and yet when we see it happen, it makes us uncomfortable. So what I want to do is I want to I kind of transition us into the series we're going to be walking into. And I want to look at just one, one little story. One little story that jacks up our entire equilibrium. One little story that just really messes with our ideas of what is fair. When Jesus was crucified, the Bible tells us he was crucified between two criminals. Famously, people referred to them as thieves. We actually don't know exactly what they did. The word criminal there translates evildoer. All we know is it was a capital offense. And this is the way it played out. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus says to this man, truly, truly I say to you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you're standing at the foot of these three crosses, and the reason you're there is because that criminal who Jesus just offered grace to harmed someone in your family, and you're there on that day to see him get justice. And Jesus, right before this man breathes his last, says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Would you have any objections to that? Because I would. I would throw the brakes on grace right then and there. I'd be like, whoa, 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 time out, Jesus. But they, do you know what they did? Do you know what they've done? What do you think Jesus' response would be? I think his response would be, oh yeah, I know exactly what he's done because that's why I'm on this cross for him and by the way, for everything you've done too. But, But Jesus, that guy didn't deserve that. Right, that's the point. But Jesus, that man lived his whole life in defiance and sin, and right before he dies, he's going to get off the hook. Jesus would respond, that's why they're going to write a song called Amazing Grace, because it's amazing. 
But Jesus, that man can't get down off that cross. He can't go make amends. He can't pay his debt to society. He can't even say he's sorry. He can't start doing good things to balance out the scales of justice. He's about to die. He can't clean himself up. And Jesus would respond with, he never could have cleaned himself up anyway. And by the way, neither can you. I came to clean you up because you can't clean yourself up. Grace is a tsunami. And the only way to experience it is to surrender to the tidal wave, to let go and watch what God does best. Grace is amazing and grace is ridiculous and it's over the top. And when you take out this telescope and look at it, it's almost impossible to take it all in. It'll leave you breathless. And all of this grace speaks to God's magnificence. There are a million things in the world that are like arrows pointing to heaven that point out how great and how glorious our God is, but nothing points to his glory quite like his grace. And if you're in here today going, man, that sounds awesome. I bet that's true for him and her and other people, but it certainly couldn't be true for me. Take another look around you. You are surrounded by a rough crowd. You are surrounded by some folks who have run very far from God. You have not sinned bigger than those of us around you today. You are not beyond God's grace. We are living proof. We are living evidence that your sin is not bigger than God's grace. Your failure pales in comparison to God's free gift. Your train wreck of a life is not beyond God's ability to redeem. You have not outpaced grace and you aren't forgotten. He did this for you. He had you in mind. You're in the middle of a rough crowd. Now, the only thing we can do at this point is say thank you and celebrate it. So that's what we're gonna do across all our campuses. We're gonna pass out some bread. We're gonna pass out some juice and we're gonna remember Jesus's body that was broken so that we could, we could float freely in this amazing thing called grace. And we're gonna take some juice and we're gonna remember his blood that was poured out for us so that we could stand before God uncondemned and free and clean. Listen to these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the phrase, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, come before you right now, and uh, we can get so focused on our inadequacy we can get so focused on all the things we've walked through in this series, our fears, our weaknesses. Father, we can get so focused on our sin that we fail to see the tsunami of your grace and the ferocity of your love and the power of who you are and the kindness of the Father that you are. So Father, help us now to look toward the cross and to see this amazing thing called grace. 
and help us to take it in as, as best we can this side of heaven. God, would you continue to just operate in our lives in such a way that all that we can do is stand back and say thank you and all we can do is point to you and go, you did this. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.